Thanks for tuning in to the Voyage Church Podcast. Our desire is that today's message will be significant for all of us on the voyage of becoming. The gospel of Jesus, it's not, it's the gospel of the kingdom, and Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And so Jesus comes bringing a gospel about his kingdom, about its rule and its reign in the earth, and he is asking us to bring his kingdom, everything you just sang, on earth as it is in heaven. And so um, now that we've established what the gospel is, the gospel of God's kingdom invading the earth is the highest authority. I was actually uh, standing side stage reading a passage where when Jesus was about to be handed over, when everybody's shouting, crucify him, crucify him, uh, Jesus makes a super gangster statement. He says, "Um, you actually don't have power to hand me over. Um, He said, this is all happening for me to take away the sins of the world, but the person who hands me over actually has the greater sin. And I was like, dude, how legit does it get when you're literally being handed over to death and like, hey, by the way, you didn't make this choice. This choice, your hand's being forced because the sin you're committing against me to crucify an innocent man, this crucifixion is going to pay for the sin that you commit to crucify me. I just took some of y'all deeper than you were ready in church. Jesus, in other words, is saying, I've got an authority you know nothing about. This kingdom, this rule, Pilate asks him in a back room when Pilate's like, dude, I feel bad for you. All the Jewish people are wanting to kill you. Like, man, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to figure a way out. And he goes, but, but are you a king? And Jesus responds, he says, you, I'm a, you, you say I'm a king. And Pilate's like, no, I didn't say you were a king. The Jewish people say you're a king. I'm asking you if you're a king. And then Jesus is like, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my disciples would be fighting you, trying to get me free. But because my kingdom's not of this world, this has to happen so that my kingdom can actually do what is needed in this world is to redeem people out of darkness, out of sin, from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. That's the gospel. Now, Jesus, once he establishes what the gospel is, at the very end of his life, he gives us this commission. Now, the word commission is a really great word because you might have a life mission. You might have some purpose in your life. This is my life's mission, right? Maybe you and your spouse are like, man, we want to see healthy marriages. This is our life mission, and that's great. Um, But I would actually fix that and say that's a co-mission because the word co-mission, co is a prefix meaning together. And so a co-mission is a mission we do together. So you actually can't do the great co-mission that Jesus gives us by yourself. It's impossible. It takes a church. It takes God's people to fulfill the commission. Now here's the way the commission works. In Matthew 28, we're actually told that the commission is to go from Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jerusalem is very important because Jesus is speaking to a group of people, and these are, uh, they're mainly Jews. And so he's letting them know this gospel that you're going to preach is going to start at home first. So today's message, um, and I have to do this over the next few weeks to make sure I give you Jesus's way of the gospel. In the American church, we can come on Sundays, check a box, sign up for a mission trip to Haiti. We go, we feel better about ourselves, but we never bring the gospel to our homes. We need to take it to the ends of the earth. It's a must. It's literally not a suggestion. It's a command. But it's home first. Because home is actually the launch pad of everything that God wants to do through your life. And so... I'm so thankful for a mom and dad. My parents were here in the first service. They're headed back home. Um, But I'm so thankful for a mom and dad who, they took me to Haiti when I was 13 years old. I got to see what it meant to take something to the ends of the earth. But I was raised in a house where the gospel was in the home. The gospel was in the home. I watched my dad 
often apologize to my mother and repent and even at times say sorry to me and my sister for ways that he might have treated because as he was in God's house and he was in discipleship, I remember if there's any uh, men in the church, maybe you're old enough where you went to a promise keepers event. Any men in the room went to a promise keepers event? All right, come on. Um, and Seth, that's just because you're hashtag church kid because you're definitely, yeah, that's exactly why. I was like, you young and went to promise? But yeah, he did. Um, hashtag church kids. But my dad went to a Promise Keeper event, and it's just a, an event for men to encounter the Lord. And I'll never forget my father coming back, humble, repentant, just like seeing God do a work. And it's the gospel in our home. So the title of today's message is this, the gospel in our homes, or you can even put in parentheses, the gospel in my Jerusalem, the gospel in my Jerusalem, in my home. Um, if, if obviously you just kind of spent some time with Voyage Church in the room um, people ask us often, hey, what kind of church are you? You know, the church is growing and people call and send emails and do you guys believe in this? And do you believe in this? And do you do this? And, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. And I'm like, well, the apostle Paul told Timothy, stay away from pointless, mindless arguments. And some of you are like, well, are y'all non-denominational? Are you this? Are you this? And I'm like, who made all this? We're Jesus church. I don't really know what to tell you. We just like love God and we love people and we make much of Jesus. Like that, that's about all I can give you. Um, and I hope that you see in the room this morning, He's the most honored guest here. He's the most important person here. And what we're doing right now is we're opening up his word, which sharpens and transforms us. And so as I was praying for you last night on the way home from Nashville, um, I hear preachers say, and I've said this, hey, I want to share God's word with you. And the Lord convicted me, and he said, John, you say that a lot, but you actually don't want to share. You want them to sit, be quiet, and just listen to you talk. <laughs> and I was like, do I need to pull over right now? <laughs> um, and obviously, I would love to have a small group setting in the room right now. It's, it's a little hard with this size crowd, which is why Jesus gives us a model of 12 is a really great number to have closeness with and communion with. I encourage you to sign up, be a part of a group. But I want to invite you this morning as I unpack three kinds of homes in the Gospels to share in the word with me. What I mean by that is, is don't just listen to me talk, but agree with it. You can say amen. You can say that's good. When you respond to the word of God, it's actually your spirit bearing witness with the spirit of God, that, and which if you're a Christian, you have the spirit of God, and there's a bearing witness. When we say amen, that's not a religious word. That's actually a very um, emphatic spiritual word that means let this truth be as it has been said. Let this happen in me. So I encourage you to share in God's word with me this morning. Take notes, lean in, write down the passages, go back and devour it because this, we, we can sing songs all day and I hope you notice. If you're in this, you'll notice, oh wow, they just sing the word a lot. Yes, we do. Because it is the word. It, it has to be the word. It's Jesus. He's the word made flesh. So we sing the word, we read the word, we preach the word, we receive the word. But today my heart and my prayer is, is that we don't miss, we live the word. We live this in our homes even if it's uncomfortable, because it's our highest honor to share in God's word. So Holy Spirit, teach us right now. We thank you for your word, and we honor you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 19, I'm going to give you three kinds of homes that I see in the gospels. The first home is this, um, an empty home, an empty home. Luke 19, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read you 10 verses about a guy named Zacchaeus. I was at a school this past week on Monday speaking to a group of kindergartners to about fourth graders. There's about 200 of them. Um, 
And uh, if you think um, anything in life is hard, uh, try giving a gospel message to a group of 200 um, kindergarten through fourth graders. And then for the Lord just to laugh at me and have a lot of fun on Monday, I show up and they're like, hey, we're so sorry. We double booked our assembly room. So there's someone in there. So we're going to have to put all the kids outside on concrete with no shaded covering. And we'll sing like a couple songs, just like acapella. And then like you can share. I was like, it's fine. I'm, we're, I'm a mobile church pastor. It's fine. No big deal. It's fine. It's fine. This is terrible. I get there and, and, and it's my turn, you know, Pastor Teal from Voyage Church. And so I come up and uh, kids are all like this and it's so hot. And there's, uh, you know, and then literally out of nowhere, this lawn company descends like elves from the North Pole. And then just like literally, I had to stop what I was doing in my welcome because this guy walked right down the sidewalk with a weed eater running. Seeing 200 kids, single person standing in front of them, I'm thinking like, read the room, bud. Read the room, right? And so at that point, I don't even have a microphone. So I'm like, hey, everybody, just look at that guy. He looks awkward. And like literally had all these 200 kids stare at him. This guy had glasses on, and he just literally goes. Uh, I was like, yeah, bro, I'm about to make you feel awkward because you're like, read the room. And then this school has a helicopter place right next door, and, you know, we kind of train all the helicopter pilots. Bless you if you're a helicopter pilot. But... Can you guys, like, I don't know, just, like, change your schedule or something? But anyways, like, every, I mean, three and a half minutes, I was like, where are they coming from? Like, how many did you have in that field? And so I gave a seven-minute message on Zacchaeus. Some of y'all don't think it's possible. You can ask my daughter, Summer Kate. I took her with me. It had to happen. But as this was happening, I just felt like the Lord was like, this is great. He's just laughing at me. And I went. I was obedient. I gave him the word. But the Lord said, hey, this is the first house I need you to talk about. The first one is an empty home. Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Everyone say very rich. It's important that you know he's very rich because as a tax collector, it doesn't denote immediately that you become rich. To be a tax collector, there was a certain tax that was required and you could just collect that. For them to say you're a chief tax collector and you became very rich denotes to us and most theologians would agree that something shady is going on. How this guy got tax collector and very rich next to his name. You'll see a few more things that, um, that Luke does a really good job. And, you know, Luke was a doctor, so his details are, are very good. But um, so his chief tax collector in the region became very rich. Verse 3, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Short people, holla, okay? And so he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore fig tree. Everyone say fig tree. Very important. You'll see in a few moments. Beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass by that way. Now, for Zacchaeus to make all this effort to see this man, if he's a chief tax collector and he is very rich... Um, and you'll see at the end of this story, what he ends up telling Jesus he's going to do tells us like, okay, this guy is not honorable. He's not honest. Um, many people would agree that this would have been a like biblical times gangster. He is running stuff east side, north side. He got people at the corner store and he's get cuts of it all. He could be running. We know that um, there, there were prostitutes in all different sections of towns. You can see that in Luke 15 where they talk about it. Potentially some theologians will say he might even have been running a ring. There's a lot like this guy had his hands and stuff in this town. He runs this. This is his town. He don't care who's in charge. of. Oh, you tell me I take this much tax. Yeah, hey, guys, look, you're going to add 17% on that, and I'm getting 12% of that. Like, don't just bring it to me. Don't, don't make me have to come find you. He was running this thing. And so for Zacchaeus, you have to think about this guy in this town where he's kind of got his hand in the mix, and he hears some stories about this guy, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua. 
And here this Yeshua is opening up blind eyes. Like there are, there are, there are stories coming from towns where it's like he's literally flipping things upside down. The religious people hate him, but he is a Jew. And he's just, man, he healed on the Sabbath. Like for Zacchaeus, he's like, who is this guy? I got to get a look at him because I need to make sure that he's not about to come in here and, and, and mess with a lot of what I got going on. But also I'm kind of intrigued. I'm inspired by what he's able to accomplish. So he, call, he, he climbs this sycamore fig tree in verse five. I love this. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Now, there is nothing in the scriptures to ever denote to you and I that Zacchaeus and Jesus have ever met. So we know that Jesus is fully human where he feels temptation and pain and all of those things, but we know he's fully God. And so he knows Zacchaeus by name. If you're here today, I don't know what you believe about God, but God knows you by name. He knows you by name. He walks up to the base of his what kind of tree? Fig tree. And he calls him by name. And I love that Jesus says in verse five, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Any of y'all got friends who invite themselves over? <laughs> That's Jesus, right? Like some of y'all, like the doorbell rings and you're like, it's literally them again. Like what is going on? You can look on the doorbell camera and you're like, you look at your wife, they're like, they're... and then she's like, they see our cars in the driveway. I know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we took an Uber and we like flew to San Diego. I don't know. Jesus just invites himself over. Hey, I'm coming to your house. And, and I know a lot of times in church world, we talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts and inviting Jesus into our lives. And yes, invite him. Just know that your invitation is actually you just opening up the door that he's already been knocking on. The Bible says that he stands at the door and he knocks. So he's inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And, and I love verse seven, but the people were displeased. Now, who are these people? They, these are these are religious people, they're mainly Jews, and these religious people are displeased, and he has gone to be a guest of a notorious sinner. Hold up. Some of y'all could be like, Pastor John, how do you know? You're saying all this kind of outlandish stuff. How do we know this about Zacchaeus? You're right. I don't know exactly what Zacchaeus was doing wrong. I know that when we read scripture, there's a lot of things we don't have filled in, but what I did just find in the scriptures written explicitly is that he was a chief tax collector and became very rich, red flag, and then now that Jesus says, I'm going to your house, Local religious people go, why is he going to the house of a notorious sinner? They know something about him we don't. And Zacchaeus has to be involved in some things that religious people don't like. But Jesus isn't concerned with that, is he? Jesus is concerned with a relationship that changes everything. And so I love that it says they're upset. Now between verse 7 and 8, I don't know what happens. Because if he invited Jesus over to his house, they would have had a meal. And a meal in this culture, you would have had a table, would have been a little bit lower than your kneecap. You wouldn't have had chairs. You'd have had pillows. You'd have, you'd have kind of lounged with your feet behind you, the table in front of you, and you would partake of the meal, and, and you would conversate. And so between seven and eight, there's this moment at the table. All we hear is, I'm going to your house. Verse seven, why is he going to notorious sinner's house? And then verse eight. And in verse eight, Zacchaeus is not seated. In verse eight, it says, meanwhile, there's that word again. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Okay, so now we've got a third thing. The Bible says, let everything be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And now we have a third thing that lets us know, okay, Zacchaeus knows he's wrong, right? There's like, in church world, it's like people can talk about sin 
And I meet people and they're like, well, I just feel like constantly told I'm a sinner. First off, no one needs to make you feel condemned. There's no condemnation in Christ. But second of all, you already know you're a sinner. Like, let's be honest. You know you're wrong. I know I'm wrong. We know we're broken. And we know we need restoration. And we try to find it in everything else, but it's in him. I don't know what happens between verse 7 and 8. All I know is something happened from the moment of, come down, I'm going to your house. They go, and they would have shared a time together. And Zacchaeus pushes away, stands up. There were probably other prominent people, people that Zacchaeus was like, hey, look. I mean, Zacchaeus could have even been thinking, man, he's inviting, he's inviting himself over to my house, but I'm gonna take advantage of that for some status. Oh yeah, that Jesus guy, yeah, I've already had him over to my house first time in town. He could have been thinking this way. But after whatever happened, what I do know is the compassion, the grace and the mercy of Jesus was there because that's what we see with Jesus the whole time, right? Towards sinners, the people that Jesus was, frustrated with and angry and harsh with, he did that with religious people. But what I know is that something between seven and eight positioned Zacchaeus to go, I'm changing everything. I'm changing everything because of this one moment. There's some marriages in the room where a husband today, you're gonna grab your wife's hand and say, babe, I know I haven't done this right, but we're changing everything. We're changing who's over our finances. We're changing what we watch, what we listen to, where we spend our time. We just locked eyes with Jesus and we're changing everything. And that's what happens to this notorious sinner, right? Not someone who's like, you know, I try to do my best, go to church and I put a few dollars in the bucket. You know, I Notorious sinner changes everything and Jesus' response is, Jesus responded, salvation has come to this house or to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. It was an empty home, but one encounter with Jesus changes everything. This is how the gospel begins to enter into your home is when you, after moments with Jesus, not a sermon from a preacher, but moments with Jesus, spend time in his word, time with him, and you go, that's gotta change. That can't stay. That can't stay in our marriage. That can't stay. Young people, some of you, it's going to be stuff that you don't have authority to walk up to your mom and dad and say, you gotta stop that. Some of you, it's going to be your one thing, your closeness with Jesus that's gonna shift the atmosphere. And it's gonna be because you're inviting him in. Write this down. Jesus, if you want the gospel in your home, Jesus must be a guest in your home. I'm telling you, your life, your daily activity, Jesus must be a guest in your home. Now, this is, this is twofold. Because in the old covenant, the presence of God resided in the temple. We obviously don't have a temple. We would be more like when the Israelites were wandering and they had a tent, okay? We kind of pop it up, we tear it down. But the presence of God no longer resides behind the curtain. It resides in new covenant believers who are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So before you get the gospel into your physical brick and mortar home, you need the gospel in this home. You're a temple, but once you have the gospel, you've received it within it is now not a suggestion, but a command and the launch pad of the Great Commission to get the gospel in your home. We can no longer do casual Christianity. It does not work. It has never worked. It created a whole lot. You know, let me tell you, just kind of be real frank with you and tell you what I saw growing up in church. I'm thankful that I had 
a youth pastor who pointed me to Jesus and I didn't get locked in programs and, and all this stuff with church. And, and I watched friends that I went to high school with where their parents were like, we're going to church, we're going to church. And the moment their children graduate high school, the moment they're like of age and you don't have to feel bad about it anymore. It's like, wait, why y'all are all, you got a 21 year old child. You don't go to church anymore. Y'all hang out and go on vacations and drink all the time. Hold on. Was this ever about the gospel or is this about a look? Because the gospel changes everything. Zacchaeus said, I'm changing everything. Jesus has to be a guest. And you know, if you invite a guest to your house and you spend no time acknowledging them and no time talking with them, they're probably not coming back. Can I tell you something about the beauty of Jesus? Jesus will show up on an invite. And even if you don't acknowledge him, he'll keep showing up every time you ask him in but you won't see the change until you honor him as the most welcomed guest that you've ever had. So Zacchaeus climbs up in a what? In a fig tree. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sin and they go grab sycamore fig leaves and they cover themselves up with fig leaves to cover their shame. Jesus is walking with his disciples from outside the city, inside the city. He sees a fig tree a sycamore fig tree. He sees a fig tree producing no figs. All he sees is leaves. He curses the tree. The reason he curses it is because the leaves represent the shame that Adam and Eve used these leaves to cover up with. Zacchaeus climbs up in a sycamore fig tree and Jesus walks up to the base of his shame and calls him out of it. I don't know how shameful you are today. I don't know how regretful you are for the life of sin and the struggles and the decisions you've made. Jesus is at the base of your tree today and he's not shaming you and he's not condemning you. He's inviting himself in and calling you out of the shame. Because the gospel, we've said it here if you've been around, the gospel is not shame on you, but shame off of you. Shame off of you. That's the gospel. That's the Jesus I see here clearly in the scriptures. And Jesus did something at that dinner table that changed his life forever. And I love his response as he said, salvation has come to this home. Jesus will take an empty home and fill it. The second kind of home is this, a distracted and divided home. A distracted and divided home. Luke chapter 10, same, same uh, book, same gospel, but go back a few chapters. Luke 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Martha did the right thing. She brought Jesus in as a guest. Amen? Everybody say, good job, Martha. <laughs> Invited him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. Now, remember, he probably would have been at a table waiting. He would have had his feet probably kind of towards the end or behind him. And Mary would have just been sitting at the Lord's feet. And the Lord's just talking. It's, it's very possible there's other people in the room as well. But look at what happens for Martha. Because Martha is the one who invited him in. Like, man, Martha, Martha got Jesus in the room. This is incredible. Her, miss, her sister uh, Mary sits at Lord's feet listening to what he taught, verse 40. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. Everyone say distracted. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. I don't know if any ladies in the room have any sisters, but I know y'all get it's feisty, right? But could you just see the picture? Martha working in the kitchen. Now, let's be honest. If Jesus in the flesh invited himself over to your house or you welcomed him in and he came over, you would be too. Jesus, I'm about to smoke the best brisket. You ain't gonna wanna go nowhere else. 
Martha's not doing a sinful thing. What Martha's doing, I, I probably would be doing. I'm like, I'm trying to impress him. I want to impress Jesus. The problem is, is so many Christians, we live trying to impress Jesus when we're not the impressive one. He is. He's the impressive one. It's him. You don't have anything. We're nothing without him. But I could see Martha walking up to Jesus, right? Here's Mary right here. Not going to look at her yet. Jesus, don't you think it's unfair that Mary just sits here while I do all the work? And you would think that'd be enough. She'd take a step farther. Tell her to get up and come help me. It's known that Jesus walked up to, he walked up to a girl who was 12 years old who passed away, and he actually said, little girl, get up, right? And so I think it's funny that she said, tell her to get up. You've done this before. Tell her. She's looking like she's dead, just sitting there. And so Martha's upset. Again, Martha's upset, and she's not doing a sinful thing. It's a distracted thing. Somebody's like, I'm good. I'm not, I'm not living in sin. Like, you know, and if I, if I slip up real quick, I confess. The Lord forgives me. Amen, he does. But are you living distracted? Are you living distracted from the fullness? Because Jesus' response changes everything in this moment. But Lord, the Lord said to her, dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. And Mary has discovered it. And it will not be taken away from her. The one thing. The one thing. What's the one thing in your life? Is it, is it Jesus? Like, like, I know he might be a thing, but are you distracted from him being the one thing? Like, like the one thing. I was in a small group um, the year before we moved here to plant the church at Bold City, the church that, that sent us and has just, you know, continued to, to sow into Shauna and I and pastors Jason and Tiffany, our, our overseers, and so grateful for their lives. And he texted me this morning, said he was praying for all of you. But I was in a group and, and Pastor Jason at Bold City has an elder on, uh, on his elder board. Um, person doesn't work for the church. He's a businessman outside the church. His name's Adam Driggers. And Adam is a, a businessman. He owns a successful business, and, um, but he just loves God's word. I mean, and he'll teach at times. I actually tried to get him to come teach first week of October, but Pastor Jason's taking him to London, so that was a jerk move. But um, we'll get him here because he's, he's an incredible man of God. But I'll never forget sitting in this house for group one night, and we were talking about spending time in the word. And I'll never forget, tears started running down his face before he talked. And, you know, he's just one of those people, you look at him, he's, he's an ex-bodybuilder, and he's still really fit in his older age. He has no hair, this, like, really legit beard. And, I mean, he just looked like he'd pop a knot on your head. Like, he's just legit. And um, tears began to run down his face. And someone was like, you know, I kind of struggle, like, getting in the Word. And, and he said, I don't mean any disrespect. He said, I'm a business owner. I'm not retired. I've got a busy life. He said, I'm in a love affair with Jesus. He said, my night prepares my morning. And he began to walk us through what his nights look like. He said, at night I go to the dining room table and I set up my Bible and I prepare the passage of scripture that I'm gonna be devouring the next morning. I put my journal and my pen and my highlighter. I go and set the coffee pot with an alarm for it to go off at 445. He said, and I literally walk away from the table. And this man's weeping at this moment. He said, I walk away from the table just longing, sometimes struggling to sleep to just get with him, just my one thing, my one thing. And I just remember sitting there, I'm a pastor on staff at this church, and I was just like, God, give me that. 
God, I want, I, I just, I, I want you to be my one thing. Jesus looks at Martha and says, Martha, you're not doing anything sinful, but you're distracted from the one thing. And I know some of you might be like, Pastor John, that is overwhelming. Like, I don't even understand the Bible. That's okay. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to understand it. We do not live our lives by doing really anything that we fully understand, do we? When was the last time you went to the traffic control place and was like, hey, can you teach me the inward workings of all the traffic lights? Because I'm not driving until I understand how they work. No one's done this. But we don't use this anywhere. I meet people in church all the time. They're like, well, I got hurt in church, and I'm never going back. That's a weird statement. You had a bad haircut one time. You didn't stop getting haircuts. You had a bad experience at one restaurant, but you didn't give up all restaurants because I saw you last week. We ran into each other. We don't use this logic anywhere else. We only use it in the place that would require our surrender. And then not realizing it's the deception of the enemy that wants to get you out of the fold because if you're out of the fold, he knows that you won't flourish unless you're in God's house. Because he's the one thing. And, and God sets it up that there are things strategically placed by his divine providence that he says, you've got to be with me, just me, your one thing, and you've got to be in the body of believers because there's no way that you can love God and be, like, fully love God and be di disconnected from his bride. If you came up to me today and said, Pastor John, I just want to let you know I love your preaching, but I got a few qualms against your wife. I'm probably going to tell you, like, hey, I got a few guys that are bigger than me that you're going to talk with outside, and you're going to find another church next week because you're not about to talk to me about my bride in a negative way. We do this with the groom, Jesus, and the bride, the church. But he's our one thing, and guess what? He made his one thing, his sacrifice for his bride. His sacrifice for the world, for anyone that would choose him to be their one thing, to become the bride. And what happens is many times we have these distracted and divided homes. There's a spouse in the room. You love God, you're in the word, and your spouse is just like, ah, I don't even want to come. I would say of our 111 students that we had at youth this past week, which is a miracle, y'all. We don't have no youth pastor. We ain't got no building. This generation's hungry, hungry. I would say 50% of those students, mom and dad don't give a rip that they come to church. 50% of those students show up here at 6 a.m. on their own, catch rides so that they can build the church. You want to know why? Because Jesus has become their one thing. It, it, I, I watch people's jaws drop all the time. How do you have all these young people down here? I don't have all these young people down here. Jesus does. He's captured their heart and their lives. And guess what? Even young people, you could live in a home that's divided and distracted, but if you make him your one thing, this is what the Lord's heart is. When the gospel gets in the home, he begins to unify that which is distracted and divided. And the third home is this. Jealous and callous homes. Luke chapter 15, there's a story. You've probably heard it. You have the, if you've been in church, you've heard it. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. We preach it, and we talk about the prodigal son, the wayward son, the son who asked for his father's inheritance, which I don't have time to break it all down for you, but that's a really, really rude move, okay? Fathers don't give inheritances until they're on their deathbed or dead. It's set up that way culturally. This son goes to the father and says, I want my inheritance now. Now, the deal is we know, according to the story, he's not on his deathbed. The reason we know he's not on his deathbed is because at the end, when the prodigal son comes home, the father, the Bible says the father runs towards his son, okay? 
So in other words, he said, dad, I'd rather you be almost dead or dead. Give me my inheritance now. The father does it, gives the youngest son the inheritance. He goes, and the Bible says he wastes it on wild living and prostitutes. Bible's words, not mine, okay? Says then he gets to the point where he has no more money. He gets a job feeding pigs. And it says as he's standing there feeding pigs, he looks at the slop, and it says that he begins to, he's so hungry and so poor that even that is looking enticing. Church, hear me today. The more that you squander and, and, and try to pour out on the things of this world to be satisfied, you'll end up looking at things that would have disgusted you in seasons past, thinking they look appetizing and willing to give yourself to them just because you've wasted it all on the wrong person or the wrong things. He's the one that's worth the cost. But thanks be to God, it says that while he's desiring the pig slop, he doesn't eat it, right? It says he comes to his senses. Some of you by the Holy Spirit today are coming to your senses. It says he comes to his senses and says, even my father has servants that, that he gives bread to. They might not be his sons, but at least I could go work for my father and, and just at least have some sustenance. So he begins to make the journey home. And the Bible says while he's a long way off, the father sees him. The father begins to run after him. And there's a lot of implications there. Men over a certain age, they don't run. It's disgraceful. On top of the garment he would have wore, he would have had to pull the garment up. You don't show legs, um, anything ankle above as a man with the garment. It's the same thing with women. You don't show that. So the father puts himself in a disgraceful position to give grace towards a son. And when he gets there, I love that the Bible actually says in Luke 15 that the son begins to give a speech. Remember, he made a whole speech. I'm not worthy to be your son, but I just want to be a servant. And it says, as he says, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven, and I'm not worthy to be your son. It goes dot, dot, dot. And then this is what we get. <laughs> the father interrupts the son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead, but now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Anybody love a party? Come on. Heaven throws a party. It's God's way. Some of you, you want the gospel in your home? Start celebrating more. Parents, start celebrating your young people more. Start honoring them. Husbands, start honoring your wife and celebrating all the hard work that she does. Husbands, start or wives, start celebrating your hu uh, husbands and all the hard work that they do. Recognize it. Let the gospel culture of celebration be in your home. Do you have a home that when you walk into, everything's just ho-hum? Everybody goes to their separate spaces? Invite the gospel in. It'll change everything. But what I want to focus on is not the prodigal son. If you're a prodigal in the room, if you've run away from the Lord... He's coming after you. But I want to show you the son that we often don't talk about. Meanwhile, the older son, everyone say older son. He's in the fields working. He's doing his job. Older son didn't leave, didn't disrespect daddy. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. It says, when he returned home, because he was out in the field, he heard music and dancing in the house. <laughs> Dad threw a party for me. Man, I didn't know I'd been gone that long. He asked one of his servants, what's going on? Oh, your brother is back, he was told. And your father killed the fattened calf. And we're celebrating because of his safe return. Safe return? That punk's a fool. He wasted all dad's money. What do you mean safe return? The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. Everybody remember that. You're going to need it in just a few minutes. The older brother wouldn't go in. His father came out, because he's a good father, and he begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you, never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes and you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. 
Someone's salty, y'all, okay? Brother is not happy. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead, but he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. There's some of you, you grew up in church, and because of, you've, been, you've maybe been hurt, and trust me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, okay? I can stand in that line with you, but I'm just not staying in that line because Jesus didn't hurt me. A man either mishandled the call of God or, or um, treated in ways because of things that they couldn't handle in personal life, whatever it may be, but Jesus, the head of the church, did not hurt you. He has not hurt you. But I want you to see the older brother because the father representing the father and the older brother here, it's interesting that he stayed obedient. He's done all the right things. And in doing the right things, he gets to a place of a jealous and callous heart, a sinful heart, because he sees something happening for someone else that he deems they don't deserve. Can I tell you the most dangerous thing that you and I could do in our lives to resent the gospel is to think that we are worthy of the gospel and others aren't. None of us are worthy of it. That's why it's the gospel and it's good news. But this son with a jealous and callous heart won't go in. He won't go in. There's some of us, our homes, when it comes to the things of God, we're jealous, we're callous. God, I've been faithful and I've seen you bless them and you did this for them and I'm still struggling here. And then you find yourself not showing up one week to church and then not going to group and then you don't text that person that you asked to be the person who would hold you accountable and you don't meet up for coffee and you find yourself slowly getting to this place where you're like, how did I get so far from God when I've been in the house and I am one of God's son, sons or daughters and it's specifically because a jealousy and a callousness crept in because you began to view the gospel that it could be for you, but not for everyone. And that's not the gospel. It's for everyone. As Patrick said earlier, I don't care your socioeconomic background, where you come from, what you struggle with. It's for everyone. And it changes everything. Worship team, you can come up. The older son's crazy judgmental of the father's house. In the house, but bitter. Can I tell you that one of the enemy's greatest tactics is to get us bitter on the inside. See, God wants his spirit and his gospel on the inside so that wherever we go, we're influencing that place with the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. The enemy wants bitterness because he knows bitterness can be a root that can stop the flow of the gospel from getting there. Because do you know what the gospel is rooted in? It's rooted in serving, serving. I'm not just talking about signing up to serve. Maybe you came to church here and you've been burnt out on serving and you've served a church and went through stuff. That's fine. Take a time to sit and receive from the Lord and grow. That's amazing. But the posture of servant leadership is not a, that's not a choice. If you say yes to Jesus' command, you serve your family, you serve people at your workplace. We were to live like servants. Do you know the interesting thing about the older son? Do you know one of the things that probably would have made him really upset? Because I bet you that if the servant was like, oh, just someone that dad knew has come over and we're throwing a party. The older son would have been like, whoo, okay, yeah. And why would the older son go in? Because in this culture, the oldest son, it is their requirement to serve the father's 
guests. In this culture, the requirement of the eldest son is to serve any guests that the father brings into the home with a dinner or a party. So the oldest sons are there serving, hand and foot. Hey, what can I get you? you want some more brisket? I got you. Like, what you need? Let me fill your cup. They serve. But because the older son heard that the younger brother, the one that his jealous, callous heart deemed, he's not worthy of that. It kept him from serving, which kept him from the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of God's heart. But, but, but did you miss the most beautiful part of the story? It's when the father responds to his son, because remember, the son won't go in. There's some of you, you're in the room, but you won't press into the things of God because of maybe an empty heart, maybe a distracted and divided heart, maybe a jealous and callous heart. But, but the son made a conscious decision not to go in. But God in his goodness goes out. And the father's response is incredible. The father's response to a jealous, callous heart that, that is his, because you do understand, you can be saved and your heart can get hard over time. This is why you have to keep the one thing. Like Mary, you have to be at the Lord's feet. You have to make sure he keeps your heart soft and your posture is in humility. But the father says to the oldest son, son, how could you be upset? You've been with me the whole time and everything that I have is yours. If I would have heard that you went and got the fattened calf on your own without asking me, I would have been excited that you were celebrating because everything I've got, you've got access to. You just gotta go get it. If you're a son or a daughter of the king in the room and you feel like you haven't been close to the Lord and you feel like your heart's gotten hardened, hear me today. You've got access to it all but it's time to humble yourself. Some of us are asking God to give us stuff. Going, God, they got it, why am I not getting it? And God says, I already gave it to you. You just gotta go get it. You're in the house. You're in the house. And so here's what the Lord's doing today. The home is the launch pad for the gospel into the earth. In your home, maybe you're a college age student, you just have a roommate. A roommate that could care less about the Lord or maybe a roommate who loves the Lord. You bring the gospel in your home. Teenagers, you bring the gospel in your home. Husbands and wives, you might walk out of this room and look at each other in the parking lot. We gotta change everything, huh? Yeah, we do. Some of you are gonna look at each other and be like, I can't keep going like this. I love you, but I wanna do it with you and not against you. Like, we need the gospel. We need to get back to our one thing. Some of you need to gather your children around. Spend some time in prayer and worship in your living room. And let your nine-year-old go, this is weird. I know, baby, but it's only weird till it starts working. We're making Jesus our one thing, okay? Come on, come on. We're making Jesus our one thing. And this is what the Lord told me for some of you. Some of you have some habits in your home that we've got to do away with, and the Lord is about to give you divine revelation for holy habits in your home. The, the, the world is looking not for people who go to church, but people who have holy homes, homes that are set apart, homes that look different, homes that make husbands and wives go, do you see their relationship? Do you hear how they talk to their kids? Even when their kid's a little buck wild, like it's always like laced with grace. It's always got, they're always calling them up and not calling them out. They're never pushing them down, but always speaking to where they could be. And where, do you hear that? 
Not that you're walking around using Jesus, 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 Jesus all the time, but they catch the culture of the kingdom because the gospel's in your home. You have access to it all if you're a son or a daughter. Today, the Lord is filling empty homes. Today, the Lord is unifying distracted and divided homes. Today, the Lord is softening callous and jealous homes. He's doing a work in you if you'll give him permission to do so. Will you stand to your feet? Because we just want the one thing. And I promise you that all of those things, filling an empty home, unifying a distracted and divided home, softening a jealous and callous home, it happens when he's the one thing. He's the one thing, heads bowed, eyes closed all over the room. And I watch people in first service, I know that some of you are feeling it right now. You're feeling that stir on the inside. You're like, I want the gospel like this. I want this. So right now, hear me. Husbands and wives, I'm gonna speak to you specifically first. If you're like, no, we've got to have some holy habits. Some things have to change. Grab your spouse's hand and make your way down to this altar right now. If you're like, there's some habits that have to change. Come on, you move right now. You don't have to wait. This doesn't mean you're doing something sinful. It could be like Martha. You're just distracted. But holy habits that are setting the gospel up as the launch pad of your home. And this is you getting with Jesus and figuring out your rhythm and the way that God's calling you to do it. It doesn't have to look like somebody else's. It just has to look like that your eyes are on him and he's the one thing. Now there's some, there's some other people in the room for your life personally. Maybe you live at home. Maybe you're a college-age student. Maybe you're just, you, you, you're single. You got a job. You own a house. All of that. But when it comes to the habit specifically of your mornings. The Lord is saying that it's time for some holy habits that you're about to prepare your mornings in a whole new way for him to be your one thing, your one thing. So if you're in here and you feel like there's an emptiness, I want you to come to the altar. It's going to get packed up here, but that's okay. The Lord's seeing your movement. If you see an em feel an emptiness in your heart, in some way, shape, or form, maybe you don't know the Lord, maybe you're just sensing an emptiness, I want you to move right now. While that group's moving, the next group's moving. If you're in here today and you feel distracted or divided in your home or in your heart, I want you to move right now. Distracted or divided, I want you to take a step right now. If someone's in the aisle, just say, hey, I need you to move because I got to move. It's all good. People will move for you. We got a generous church. Okay, the Lord's going to deal with something here. Thank goodness this is 11 o'clock service. There ain't no more services after this. And there's one more group. There's some people in here and you are struggling and battling with jealousy and a callous and hardness of heart. You don't even want the hardness of heart. There's even some people in the room, you're like, I feel numb to my emotions. I feel, I, I, used, I, used, to, I used to be even emotional when it came to the things of God. I would, I would weep over the lost and, and I would weep because of his beauty and I just feel callous and sometimes jealous of others. If that's you, I want you to know the Lord is going to soften your heart today. You're going to take a step right now if that's you. If you're like, man, there's a jealousy, there's a hardness in my heart, I want you to step out of your seat right now. If anybody's looking around, you're cheating. You shouldn't be looking around. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Everybody, real quick. Look. So now there's a group of people up here right now. And if you're in the room, you might say, Pastor John, I have some stuff, but it's not any of those areas. That's totally fine, man. I encourage you, lean in, press into the Lord. 
Invite him into that place. Invite the gospel into that. For those of you that are down here right now, here's what I need you to do. Because I would love to tell you like, oh, someone's gonna lay hands on you and it's all gonna change. There can be an impartation of faith, but the change happens in the decision that you make, husbands, wives, young people, older people, whatever season of life you find yourself in, that you're committing to holy habits. Hear me when I say that. I need that to get deep in your heart. God is asking you for holy habits. For some of you, you're literally about to disappear off of social media for the next year because God's asking for him to be the one thing. Some of you, he's literally going to ask you to unplug gaming systems. I know I'm the pastor's going there. But literally, he's going to say, you're going to set up a sacred space. You're going to wake up early in the mornings. You're going to stay up late in the evenings. I'm going to become your one thing. And everything you've been trying to make happen is going to begin to happen because I'm your one thing. There's some other things that the Lord's asking you to give up. I'm about to hurt hurt the American way real quick. There's some high school students. The Lord is going to ask you right now to give up that sport for this season. I can feel a dad in the room going like, wait, he's going to play professional. Fathers, you would not want your son to be successful in sport and out of relationship with the father because their identity and their security is found in him and nothing else. So right now, I want you to ask the Lord, God, give me divine strategy for holy habits. God, what are you asking me to give up? God, do I need to set the alarm earlier? I would love to tell you that he would just step in and do it, but he's standing at the door knocking. You've got to let him in. He's inviting himself in. Let him in and give him permission. So, Father, we give you permission right now. Your gospel in our homes your gospel in our hearts, your gospel, your good news, not our thoughts, not our ways, not our thinking. We don't lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways, we acknowledge you right now, Jesus. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to check us out on thevoyage.church to stay updated on everything God is doing in our city.